how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Luke 15, verse 11 to the end. So that is as follows. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth with wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole land, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. But meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's found him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. He said to his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. About two or three weeks ago, a relative of mine, not in my immediate family, paid an unexpected visit to me in my home. He said he was just going past my house and he decided to call on me. Um, he was a man in his early 50s whom I'd not seen for about a year. And um, he, he's married and he has uh, four children, three of them now grown up and left home and one who's still at school. And of course we talked about family news. He was telling me about all the things that his children were doing and I was telling him about 
my children and that sort of thing. And then he notices as I was sitting there that on the table next to me I had a Bible. And he said to me, how do you interpret the verse, spare the rod and spoil the child? Now, um, I felt like this was almost a curved ball being, sorry, if you play baseball, you know about curved balls, a curved ball being thrown me. And I, I thought I probably never really thought about it. So I talked about my philosophy for bringing up children with him and, and said, this is how I had worked. And then he told me he was in psychotherapy. I didn't even know that he was in psychotherapy, but he was. And he said he'd had a client recently who got two parents, and he said they came from a Christian background or a Christian group, and they had thoroughly believed in using the rod, as he called it, and not sparing the, you know, not, because they thought that this was God's will for how to bring up children. And he said he was dealing with, I think it was the son, because he couldn't tell me any details, he was dealing with the son who was in an extremely bad state because this had been his bringing up. He had been regularly beaten by his, children, by his parents, probably the father, I would guess, who thought that this was the way, that this was God's way of bringing up children. Afterwards, my daughter, who I think has brought up her children in an exemplary fashion, but then that's natural pride, she spoke to me and said, and I was telling her about this, and I told her what I'd said and things, and she said, oh, Dad, I would have never said anything like that. So you can see that my philosophies of how to bring up children are not flawless. I've continued to think about this. Um, it, it, it's one thing, and, and I've made some further discoveries. Firstly, the statement, spare the rod and spoil the child, does not come from the Bible. It was first written in a poem by an English poet called Samuel Butler in his poem, Hudibras. However, there is a verse in the Bible in Proverbs chapter 13 verse 24 that sounds similar but it reads he who spares the rod hates his son but he who loves him disciplines him and you might think that's pretty similar to what this English poet wrote sorry people interpret the rod as a cane, isn't it? So when they're thinking about to spare the rod, he who spares the cane hates his son. Certainly my headmaster in the boarding school I was in, who where they call the headmaster in loco parentis, which is just, I think, Latin for saying in place of your parents, he never thought to spare the rod. And I know that in one term I got 21 strokes of the cane. That was the highest I got in one term. I actually didn't object to it. I, I'd done the wrong, <laughs> I'd done what I shouldn't do. Mainly answering back and being cheeky, you know, and uh, I used to get uh, comments. Insubordination, they loved that word, insubordination. <laughs> it meant you answered back or you were cheeky and you shouldn't do that. 
you should express due dignity. But, however, coming back to this story, perhaps the most famous psalm in the Bible is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David is speaking as though he is a sheep and the Lord is his shepherd. And he continues, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. But then what follows on? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Do you think David is really saying it's a comfort for him to be beaten by the Lord with a rod? A shepherd carries a staff and a rod. The staff is a, a pole with a hook on the end. Um, and so when a sheep gets maybe stuck in a crevice or is going to eat food it shouldn't eat, he might steer it or he could lift the sheep out that is stuck. And you'll see if you watch the coronation that bishops in the Church of England, they go walking along with this uh, shepherd's crook or staff because they're meant to be rescuing people uh, and may God preserve them, may, they probably are rescuing many people from danger. But that's what the, the staff is. But what is the rod? The rod is like um, a policeman's truncheon, only bigger, and it is not to beat the sheep with. It's to beat predators with, so that if you are a sheep and a wolf or a bear or a lion, and David was um, a shepherd who had fought with bears and lions in his youth when he was a shepherd. If they come, you use the rod to protect the sheep. It's not something to beat the sheep with. It's to protect the sheep so that the sheep can live safely. Because sheep are weak and maybe foolish animals that need protection. They're great, but they, they, they can't, they're not much combat for a wolf or a, or a bear or a lion, are they? And so the shepherd has the rod to... And what I want to say is, can't you... In, not can't. Can't we interpret that verse, and though it's not a biblical verse, but there's that verse that is similar, to mean that we should be using what is the rod to protect our children. I think the dangers of our children from wolves and bears and lions is pretty minimal in these days. Um, but there are dangers for all our children, and you who are parents will know them better than me. I keep reading in the papers about people who've been affected by social media. I, I've known of children who are affected by bullies in the school playground. I, I've known about people who've played unsuitable computer games, of people who've been allowed to watch very inappropriate, and I've, I've seen this last one, okay, very inappropriate um, television programs for them. I can't make laws for you and your, but you as parents, those of you who are parents, you need to be protecting your, your children. You don't do it with a rod these days to to knock out animals that are coming to devour your children, but there can be just as much danger from society. And I'm not saying that social media is bad or that computer games are bad or anything. 
all these things can be something that affects your children and some children will be affected and some won't. You are given the wisdom by God to choose, but what you should be doing is knowing that you are there, and I, it's a bit past my time, and to protect your children and to ensure that they can grow up to live their lives. Sorry, I've spent an awful long time on this introduction, but the, the title of this passage is The Father Heart of God. The passage chosen is sometimes referred to as the prodigal son, where prodigal means reckless or wasteful. Others call it the lost son. But I think the story is about two lost sons. One son was lost because he was self-absorbed, reckless, selfish, wanted his own way, and cared little for the feelings of his father. The other son was lost because he was self-righteous, lacked compassion and love, could see the faults in others, but was blind to his own and thought he was better, superior, and deserved more than others. This parable of, that Jesus tells has been called the greatest short story ever written. It's meant to illustrate what the heart of God is like. In the Lord's Prayer, we say to God, our Father. It's meant for us, this parable, to see what God is like as a father. The younger son asks for his share of the estate now. Normally, the children receive their inheritance, or it was in that time, on the death of the father, but not before. On his father's death, he, as the younger of two sons, according to the Jewish law, would be entitled to one-third of all the property, goods, farm, and farm animals, chattels, etc., that the son should ask for his future inheritance immediately would be entirely against the culture of the people at that time in that area. The father would have been received the backing of the entire community if he just said no. That the father agreed to the son's request would have shocked the village community and also all those listening to Jesus telling the story. They would not have believed that you, you know, that you would just dish this all out at a young stage and give it to him when, when the whole law said you got it when, when the father died. The father grants the son's request and divides the property. The father could have pointed out that the younger son is being stupid. God the father allows the freedom to the son even though it is countercultural. The son is effectively saying, I wish you were dead already. The younger son collects all his inheritance, probably selling off all that he cannot take with him and goes to a distant country. This probably indicates that he went into a foreign Gentile territory where Jewish laws and customs did not prevail. He squanders all he owns, the text says, with loose living, when, it, when you're hungry for popularity, it's very easy to do this. Let me give you an example from my own life. Uh, 
It's nearly 20 years, maybe more than 20 years ago now, since I had to go out to Mongolia to run a project. Um, and Anne decided to come with me, which was uh, a lifesaver for me. And the two of us went, and it was, um, th there was quite, quite a team that I, I was appointed the team leader, and there was a, a team of expatriates and a team of Mongolians who we all traveled together across the length and breadth of Mongolia. And <clears throat> the Asian Development Bank were the people who paid for all this work. And uh, while we got our salaries, which was determined by our employers, the Asian Development Bank paid all the allowances for us. Um, they paid for our hotels and they paid for our food. They, they didn't pay for it individually, they gave you a daily sum of money. And it was extremely generous. Because Anne didn't qualify um, for, for any of this, but I could afford out of the allowance they gave me to live in hotels, to pay for all the food that Anne and I ate, to pay for all our expenses. And additionally, sometimes when I was going out to a remote Mongolian place for two or three days with the team, Anne would stay back in the hotel in the capital city. And so I'd be paying for two hotels. And I have to say, I made money out of this. I'm, you know, I, the Asian Development Bank were very generous to us. And at the end, not counting my salary, I was just um, making a profit from the allowances that they gave me to live. And then one of my team came to me and he said, I'm broke. And I, this was just a, a, well, he wasn't a single man. He was married, but his wife and children were back in England. I said, you can't be, you know? I said, how could you have spent all that money on, with just one of you when I could live on, for two of us, living in the same hotels as you and, and eating the same sort of food as you? And, and he said, I used to go after the time, I'd go into pubs, or not pub, bars and things like that that they have there, and I used to buy lots of people drinks. If they needed it, I'd buy them drinks. And he'd spent all that money that he'd been given, and... I could see what it was. It, it's not that he was thinking, these are poor people, they're hungry, I'm giving, I'm giving them food. He was trying to get popularity. He was trying to be the, the good guy. And he became broke. Well, fortunately, then went back to England, and so he didn't... He also didn't do very good work, either. But that's, that, was, <laughs> that was my problem. I had to sort it all out. When the, the younger son is broke, he spent all his money, and at that time a very severe famine occurs, and he begins to be in need. We currently well know the effect of a shortage of goods on the cost of living and on food prices. So not only did he have no more money, but the food prices had all risen for what? And it says he's in desperate need, so he tries to get work, but is unsuccessful, except as a citizen of that country, gives him a job feeding pigs. Now, for a Jew, a pig is an unclean animal. Jesus' hearers would have been well aware of this and would register the shock at what the man had to put up with. This Jew, for whom pigs were unclean animals, had to go and look after pigs, and he was so hungry that he would gladly have eaten the pig slop or the carob pods that the pigs ate. Carob is um, an evergreen tree that has pods that are rather like pea pods, right? Um, it, it's grown in Mediterranean. I don't think it grows in, in Britain, um, I suppose, unless you're an artificial gardener type thing. Um, but 
That's what he would have loved to eat, the, the pods that were fed to the peas. He became desperate. When the, the text then says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Has he repented? That's the question I'm asking you. Justine and Peter and I are the leaders of a, a house group in, in Forest Hill here. And uh, we were meeting, not last Wednesday, but Wednesday before, as a face-to-face -face meeting in, in my house. And I thought, I'm coming to preach on this passage. I'll ask them how they would preach, what they would say. I want to assure you that I'm not blaming them for any flaws in my preaching. They are an incredibly good set of people. It's a delight to be one of the team of leaders that, looks, that is, is with them. But I asked them to give me their opinions. And it came up about, does the son really repent? Right? And um, one of the team, uh, Ruben, one of the house group, Ruben said, have you heard that American podcast by two pastors about this? And, um, and I said, no, I haven't. So he sent me the, um, you know, the, the, the thing you got, and I, I got it on my iPhone, and I sat and listened to these two American pastors who were jointly speaking together in combination about this story of the, the lost son. And um, <clears throat> they did not think that the son had repented. They thought that this was the son um, using a tactic, what's going to best get me into favor with my dad? It's going to be if I say all these nice things, you know? If I say I'm sorry and I did that sort of thing. Um, but I didn't just take that podcast as the um, gospel truth. I decided to look and I read <clears throat> a commentary on this passage by someone from the 18th century, a notable uh, teacher and preacher from the 18th century. I read another one from the 19th century, the same sort of thing, a notable teacher and preacher. And I read another one from the 20th century, a notable teacher and preacher. And what did they all think? They all thought that this was a sign of true repentance. So, and I have to say that I actually think it is that, but you, uh, you pay your money and you get your whatever you want. Um, for myself, I am convinced that this is showing true repentance from the son. He's been through such a terrible conditions, and he thinks, I was wrong. Lord, help me, sort of thing. And, he's, and he goes through. The father has spent his time hoping against hope that his son would return. How many times will he have looked down that road, hoping to see his son come back, but the person walking down the road is just somebody else who's walking down the road. And then eventually, he sees that, it is, that the person coming is his son. And he runs down, and he's full of compassion to meet his son. He embraces him and kisses him. And the son does not have time to fully mouth his repentance. He only gets through part of it before the 
the, the father is saying, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. I don't know how many of you um, will have heard of a black, America, a black American singer called Paul Robeson. Um, he was big in my, he was a magnificent bass baritone singer. He was incredibly intelligent. He spoke about 20 languages. He was admitted as the only black man into a whites-only university, and he did exceptionally well in the, the courses that he took. He also played American football professionally. It almost looks wherever you, um, wherever you look, this man was so, so gifted. He died nearly 50 years ago, so for many of the younger people, they've probably never heard of him or seen him, but I can remember that when I was a boy, my, uh, my uncle used to have one of these wind-up gramophones, and he used to play the records of Paul Robeson, and my uncle would say to me, David, if I could sing like Paul Robeson, I'd give my eye teeth for it. Just something that stuck from me from 80-odd years ago, or not quite 80, 75 years ago, probably. Paul Robeson used to sing a lot of the songs that emanated, the spiritual songs that emanated from the black slave community in America. One of the songs was a picture of heaven. And it had these verses. All God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, I'm going to all walk all around heaven in my shoes. And then the next verse is, all God's children got robes. When I get to heaven, I'm going to shout all over heaven in my robes. And then it goes on to say, all God's children got wings, and then all God's children got harps. I'm just saying it in a way that you've got to listen to Paul Robeson singing it. And it, it's a, but do you see what he is saying? Black children who were slaves in America, they didn't have shoes. They didn't have robes. And the message of this passage is that when the son comes back to the father, he gives the, the son what only a son was given. So the slaves in the father's household, they wouldn't have had shoes, they wouldn't have had robes. But this son coming back, he's given shoes and he's given robes. And the father is saying, you are truly my son. And what about the ring he puts on? We, the ring is a sign of authority. And what I think is in our society, the father is saying, here's my credit card. Use it for whatever expenses you have. It's sort of like giving him authority in the building. And that's what the father's love is like. He is saying, all that you've done is forgiven. You are still my son or my daughter. In this story, it's the male story, but your son or your daughter. Whatever you've done in the past doesn't really count. If you come back to the Father, he's open with his arms to welcome you. The passage says, bring out the fatted calf. 
the message, which is a sort of modern translation, says, bring out the grain-fed heifer uh, and be merry, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. In the American Civil War, which was from 1861 to 1865, the Union forces who used to get dressed in blue uniforms, they were working under President Abraham Lincoln. And the Confederate forces, who were in gray uniforms, were under President Jefferson Davis. And they were representing the 11 southern states who wished to retain slavery. The Union forces wished to abolish slavery. The, um, the uh, 11 states in the southern who um, came out and said, no, no, we don't accept that. We want to retain slavery. And when it was evident that the Union forces led by, not led, they had different generals, of course, but under uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, well, it was obviously eventually that they were going to win in the course. Somebody came to um, Abraham Lincoln and said, how will you treat the Southerners who rejected what you wanted, who were rebellious people and rejected? Abraham Lincoln said, I will treat them as if they had never run away from the Union. Can you see the sort of, like the Father heart of God in the same sort of thing? I'm going to treat them as if they had never abandoned me, abandoned this thing and run away. Now to the older son. He feels that there is no way that the younger son should be treated like this. He asks the servant, what is going on? And the servant replies, your brother has come back. And I love the message. They draw <laughs> And they say, and the father's having a beef barbecue for him. Because your father has received him back safe and sound. But he becomes angry and is unwilling to join in. Then the father comes out to entreat him. The older son then gives a catalogue of his service, his obedience and his father's stinginess because he's never been properly rewarded. He can't even say, when my brother returned. He said, when this your son returned. Do you know? He had so broken that he could no longer call his brother his brother. Your son, when he returned, he adds that the younger son has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. Now, the text never says that he, it may have been true that that's what he did spend a lot of his money on, but it doesn't say it in the first bit, you know. But he, so he is assuming that that's where all the wealth went. You prepared this feast for him when you never gave me one. And the father says, my child, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours. And the father says, this brother of yours. He doesn't say this, my son. He hammers back that very phrase that he wouldn't say. This brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. Who did Jesus tell this story to? He told it to two sets of people. They said at the start, tax gatherers 
and sinners, because by and large, tax gatherers have fraudulently charged much more than they should have charged. It's not like our inland revenue. <laughs> or maybe you think they fraudulently charge more than you should pay. And Pharisees and scribes, who were the righteous, the religious people. God is always willing to receive sinners whose our eyes are opened, see the errors of their ways, and with repentance come and ask forgiveness. The Pharisees and scribes believe that they live good lives and that their standards met the requirements of God. They keep themselves separate from such sinners and cannot see why they are the, at least as lost as the tax. They can't see why. They're just as much lost as the tax gatherers and sinners. In the church, do we welcome uncomfortable sinners, those who do not meet perhaps our civilized manners? I'm not criticizing anyone here. I'm just asking myself all this time. Do I um, treat those people that I might find unpalatable or unthink? Do I void them so they don't impact with me? I need to come before the Lord and ask that he will open my spiritual eyes and enable me to respond as the Father does in this parable. Our God is so like the Father in this parable. His hands are always open, always welcoming. No matter what people have done in the past, no matter what I've done in the past, when we come to the Lord, he is always there to forgive. It's, it's the message of the church. Come to the Lord. Whatever you have done, you are no way out of the kingdom. He says, come and be with me. It does not matter about your past, what you have done or what you have thought. I am ready to forgive, to cleanse, to renew you. I will accept you as you are now, but you will change, and not by my pressure, but because of your internal desire. God will start, the minute you come to him, he'll start, he won't pressurize you, but he gives you the spirit, and the spirit within you will change you. Now, it may take years to see. It depends on, on who you are. It may take years for him to do the changes. But he will start to change you the minute you come to him and become his son. And the fact that just as the father put the robe on, he put the shoes on, he gives you the things that you will need to change you. And that is the, that's the message of the Christian church. Come to the father through Jesus and you will be renewed, and you will know a life, and it will be full of problems. So I'm not telling you that it won't be full of problems, but always he's with you. You're not going to be lonely in, in that sense ever again. Amen. Let your